This episode is hosted by Alex Debris. Alex is the author of the DynamoDB book, The Comprehensive Guide to Data Modeling with DynamoDB, as well as the DynamoDB Guide, a free guided introduction to DynamoDB. He runs a consulting company where he assists clients with DynamoDB data modeling, serverless architectures, and general AWS usage. You can find more of his work at alexdebris.com. PostgreSQL is a free and open-source relational database management system. Postgres-based databases are widespread and are used by a variety of organizations, from Reddit to the International Space Station. And Postgres databases are a common offering from cloud providers, such as AWS, Alibaba Cloud, and Heroku. Neon is a serverless, open-source alternative to AWS Aurora Postgres. It separates storage and computes and substitutes the PostgreSQL storage layer by redistributing data across a cluster of nodes. Today, we spoke with Nikita Shamganov of Neon. We discuss how Neon scales Postgres, how it saves cost, and the engineering that makes it possible. Nikita Shamganov, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Happy to be here. Awesome. Well, I'm super excited to have you on this one. I've been in the serverless space for a couple of years now. And I think like the biggest thing I've hear, heard people ask about for, for a long time is like, I want a serverless SQL relational database. I, I want some of that. And, and that's what you're kind of going on. So just background for people that don't know you, you're co-founder of Neon. That's what we're going to be talking a lot about today, which is the serverless Postgres database. Before that, you were, you were co-founder of MemSQL, now known as, as Single Store, which is a really interesting in-memory sort of HTAP type database as well. You also work at Coastal Ventures for the last couple of years, still there incubating Neon from there. So why don't you tell us what is Neon? Happy to. Yeah. So the short description of Neon is serverless Postgres. Obviously, the world knows what Postgres is, and it's one of the most popular open source databases. And that's the one that is growing its share still. Right. If you go to dbenginerankings.com and look at the top five databases, and I'm going to call those databases commodity databases, basically the ones that are kind of the default choice for building apps, you will see that out of the top five, Postgres today is number three, I believe, after Oracle, MySQL, and SQL Server. And then after Postgres, there's Mongo, and after Mongo, there's Redis. And within those top five, Postgres is the one that's growing share if you believe dbenginerankings.com. But kind of intuitively, it kind of feels that way, right? If you go and read Hacker News, you will see more blog posts about Postgres than about those other databases. And certainly, you also see it's in the ecosystem. So the ecosystem is building more and more extensions, more and more ORMs, more and more, I don't know, GraphQL frontends for Postgres. So clearly, the world is, is, is excited. So what is Neon? Neon is taking Postgres and making it serverless. And when you think about it kind of as an engineer is, what would I do if I wanted to make a Postgres serverless? Well, people would probably start thinking, it's like, okay, well, well, maybe I put it in containers, put it in Kubernetes, and then, but then what? It's a stateful system. And because it's a stateful system, as you're changing the size of the container that Postgres runs in, or you're moving that container from one place to another, you will need to move the data. And so and data is not that easy to move. I mean, it takes time. It has a certain amount of affinity and gravity to the place that runs there. You can also say, well, I will completely redesign everything from scratch. 
and I will build some sort of, you know, routing system and then requests will, will choose where they go. And that's how I'll be kind of in a multi-tenant way, allocate resources per request. Well, that's going away from Postgres. That is a brand new system. That is a, um, and there are systems like this out there, you know, you know, DynamoDB or Cassandra and whatnot. And those, if you like squint at them, you will see that they're mostly key value. They're not allowing you to run full-fledged SQL and, you know, moreover, they don't allow you to run full-fledged Postgres with like all its extensions and sophisticated compute and storage procedures. And the observation is that a key value request is bounded in the amount of resources it consumes versus a, a SQL request or a transaction and especially multi-statement transaction is not bounded with the, with the amount of resources it consumes. So the enabling technology that allows you to make post-serverless a separation of storage and compute. And we'll certainly talk, talk more about it. Once you separate storage and compute, you have an extra degree of freedom of where you can put that compute, you know, this node or that node. And by moving, you can move it, compute a lot faster. And that what allows you to build a serverless offering. So in short, Neon is serverless Postgres. It achieves that by separation of storage and compute and gives you additional capabilities, additional features for you to build and run your app. Awesome. I love it. So two really interesting things on there I want to follow up on. First, you're talking about the growth of, of Postgres in particular in this area. What's accounting for that growth? Why is it you know, gaining share compared to MySQL and, and other ones? Yeah, I really thought about it deeply. I've been observing that for, for years. I think the, the moment that Postgres like really became visible and known to every developer was Heroku. And I think it, 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 you know, goes back to, I don't know when, 2009, maybe when Heroku introduced Heroku Postgres and made that the default database that became like a, a, a distribution platform for Postgres. But if you also step back and think, what are the contributing factors for growth of Postgres compared to MySQL? There are, you know, architecture and license choices. You know, Postgres is, has a Postgres license, which is the most permissible, permissible license on the planet. And Postgres is not owned by anyone. So in that way, it's very similar to Linux. Like by design of the community, Postgres community, it is impossible to take ownership of Postgres. And that's a good thing. As opposed to MySQL, that first of all, it has a, a GPL license, which is less permissible, right? It's, it, 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 is, it, contagious. it is contagious. So, you know, you think twice before bringing MySQL into your organization. You have to run it by your lawyers. It's not like GPL licenses is, is something that's, you know, particularly new, but it still adds a certain amount of friction where versus Postgres in, in a way is a no regret. The second is very database specific. Postgres chose to be squeaky clean with regard to standards. And so the surface area is richer and the way Postgres implemented those features are quote unquote by the book. And that is important because it doesn't surprise you, you know, at places MySQL and I happen to know MySQL very well because single store implemented MySQL via protocol and a type system. You know, when you look at the type system, at times you're like, whoa, that's a weird decision here. That's a weird decision there. MySQL didn't support schemas for a long time. MySQL didn't have full SQL surface area with window functions for a long time. I think he has it now. And all of those things are just like a no event for Postgres, like Postgres has it all. So I think that was 
there was another big deal. Proposers of, again, being kind of purists towards open sourcing standards that over a long run and database projects tend to span decades, add up to developer trust and community. I think there is a third thing about Postgres, which is extensions. And extensions allow you to build a massive ecosystem. And so when people think about Postgres, they don't think about just the database. They think about just the database and the full ecosystem of extensions that you can bring with the database. The most popular are PostGIS, Timescale, there is a handful of others that are, you know, making the, the top five very easy to find out on the internet, but extensions are a very, very big deal. Yeah, I totally agree. Those are great points. And I think, you know, that distribution point you made, I, I think of when I started programming, it was, it was Django and Heroku. And because of that, both of those like very Postgres heavy, that was the first database I used. And honestly, now for the last couple of years, been doing a lot of serverless stuff in terms of AWS Lambda and using a ton of DynamoDB. And like, it's amazing how much sort of your, Compute platform sort of determines your database choice in, in some of those ways, at least just pushes you in, in, in sort of default ways. I like that point you made about the extensions too and, and postages and, and timescale. Those are ones I think about. I know AWS like restricts things like which Postgres extensions you can use with RDS and things like that. Does Neon allow sort of bring your own extensions or what's that, what's that look like, especially as a managed provider? As of this point in time, we bless a handful of extensions and, you know, PostgreSQL is, is, is certainly one of those. In the future, we would allow you to bring your own extension and people are already asking for it because some extensions we, we just didn't compile. It actually, it's not that hard to support. You just need to compile those extensions in, but many people actually build their custom extensions and those we actually want to support. And what we're thinking of allowing people to do is to give them the ability to compile that extensions into a Postgres instance themselves and then push it as a either a Docker container or maybe a micro VM, probably Docker container, into Neon. Underneath, we'll might translate the Docker container into a micro VM anyway, because we would, you know, for custom extensions, we would need some sort of VM boundaries around it. But that's, I think, what the vehicle is going to be in the future. We're committed to to supporting custom extensions. And just going back then to that serverless point, Neon being, you know, serverless Postgres, that term, it's sort of overloaded and everyone's trying to grab a piece of it. But like when you think of serverless Postgres, like what aspects of serverless do you think Neon has that, that makes it serverless? Well, the most important, there are two things that come to mind. The first one is you don't think about sizing. So you, you say, I need Postgres. And in two seconds, you get a connection stream. And that's all your interface with the, with the service. Then within that connection string, uh, behind that connection string is a Postgres. It's Postgres and it's Postgres compute. What's the size of that compute? In the moment you can query it, right? You know, via Postgres system functions and uh, system tables. So you can find out what the size of that compute, but we will change that, the size of that compute behind the covers based on the intensity of your workload. We will also scale it down to zero if you don't use that at all. And today, cold start is about two seconds. And I think over time, we'll reduce the cold start. I think the, the lowest bound that we can push it to is 100 milliseconds. But yeah, we'll keep making investments in this area. So not thinking about sizing is one. That's what makes it serverless. The second thing that makes it serverless is consumption-based pricing, right? So we can have subscription-based pricing, or we can have consumption-based pricing. And subscription-based pricing is what you typically see 
in many, many database products. When you say, well, you have a database of size X and this is going to cost you X dollars a month. You see it all over the place. What, what I think is people want is a consumption based pricing where, you know, if you're using more, you're spending more. If you're using less, you're spending less. And, and then you're efficient. Our interests are aligned. Those idiosyncrasies it really come, come in once you start rolling out your sales team. And if you are a subscription, then the, your sales team is very incented to sell you a bigger and bigger subscription, which oftentimes ends up being shelfware, which over time leads to churn because like your, your users are not idiots and they, they do the math in their end. Consumption based pricing, I think is universally better for infrastructure and it allows users to, it just simplifies their lives. Right. And then you can, you know, potentially give discounts for bigger commits and whatnot, but that's really going into the sales motion. I think consumption based pricing is strictly better for the user, but you can only deliver on consumption based pricing if you are serverless and if your own infrastructure allows for a consumption based usage. I love that point about the alignment of incentives with consumption base. And, you know, you can get the short term win with that subscription based pricing. And, but it's sort of like you can, you can shear a sheep, you know, many times you can only slaughter it once sort of thing. In terms of consumption based pricing, what does that look like? Is it like planet scale where it's based on number of rows read or is it based on how many compute instances are, are running and that sort of scales up and down based on what you're doing or, or what's that look like for Neon? Yeah, we haven't rolled out our pricing and there are intense debates that are, that are happening internally about what it's going to look like. It will be consumption-based. That is absolutely the case, but what are the ex exact details? So here's, here are the things that we do know, right? We will charge for storage and compute separately. In a way, Neon is bottomless, which means if you go and, and create your database, we, and then you get a connection string and you keep pushing data through that connection string into Neon, you will never run out of space. So, and for us internally, for, you know, an empty database will, will probably spend one page and then for, which is eight kilobytes and for a very large database will, will, you know, spend terabytes of, of space and the cold data of those terabytes of space, the ones that you might not be using, then we'll flush that down to S3 and we'll absolutely pass those savings into, to, to the user, right? So storage is a lot cheaper than for Neon than for everybody else. Again, it doesn't make Neon cheap. Like it's not going to be a, a, a cheap product. It's going to be efficient in the way it consumes cloud resources. And some of those savings will be parts passed to the user. And then we'll charge separately for compute and bandwidth. Unfortunately, I would, I would love to not charge for bandwidth, but we kind of have to. And if you're, if you have an endpoint that points into the internet, that's part of your, your cogs on the cloud, which you run with the cloud provider. And then with regards to compute, I'm not sure I love rows read and rows written. It's certainly one of the options on the table. What I like so far is that really on a per second basis, there is a certain size of compute we allocate to the user. And so we can just add up all those seconds, add certain amount of margin, obviously for, you know, for providing value and writing the service and then give it back to the user. And that's very similar to what it costs us. And I think it's relatively straightforward to understand. So, so far, my, my, my head is in, in doing something like this, where you know that you will never spend more than, you know, the largest, the absolute largest instance multiplied, you know, per second multiplied by the number of seconds you're using it. 
And of course it scales down to zero. So it caps the amount of spend that you have, but then you, you gain efficiencies by not using, you know, the largest instance all the time. So that is where my head is at on the, on how to charge for compute, but we haven't rolled out pricing yet. And so there's still some intense debates going on. Yeah, it's it's interesting with the move con to consumption-based pricing. A little bit of that unknown and like having to re-educate people on it where previously they just buy a giant instance, you know, have it at low utilization most of the time, but at least they knew what their bill was going to be. And now it's like, hey, this is going to be cheaper for you. You just have to trust a little bit and understand what your, your metrics are. Yeah, I think that we know for sure that branching will be free. As many branches as you want, because branches is a part of our architecture. They're implemented at the storage tier. And so it's, you know, creating a branch is free for us should be free to the user for the user as well. Awesome. Awesome. I'm super excited to get into the tech around branching. One, one last question, like product based. You mentioned like pricing still rolling out. I know y'all it's, it's September 2022 right now. You're in private beta. What do you have any sort of timelines on when you'd like to get it public and GA or what do you think in there? So pricing is going to roll out early Q1 next year. I think we're pushing 2000 users on the, on the platform right now. So. Very excited to have that and just starting because we, we opened the gates June 15th. So we keep onboarding users every day, you know, probably around 50 users every day and more and more users sign up. So we're, we're excited about it. What's gating that really is our two features. First of all, we need to have pricing and billing, right? We need to roll out what our pricing actually is. And it's one of the most common questions when we talk to our community. The second thing is we teased everybody with branching on the front page of, of Neon, on neon.tech. And branching is there, it's there, you can consume it via an API, but we don't have beautiful UI that supports it, where it's like literally being built right now and rolled out and we running user interviews. So we want to make sure that branching experience is very understandable to, for the user. I kind of want to emphasize this point. When you build something that, that people kind of relate to, which is like Postgres, so, you know, I make an API call, I push a button, I get Postgres. Nobody's confused there, right? It's very easy to understand what that is. Branching changes the way people think and interact with the database, at least somewhat, right? You have your main branch and then you can create another branch and it creates a full fork of the database. And now because storage and compute are separate, so potentially you can create multiple compute endpoints and assign them to branches. So that introduces complexity. It's not particularly rocket science, but we still want to run it through the user interviews and make sure that people like really, really get it and love it. So the infrastructure for branching is there and it works and there are people using it every day, but that UX and DevX and, and API is being iterated on. So that's the other thing that is, that is, that is gating us to just open it for everyone. We think Q1 is where the, we will open the flood, floodgates. And we're also working with a few partners that can consume. I can't really disclose it just yet, but we're going to be rolling out it very, very, very soon where you'll be able to push a neon button on somebody else's platform. And that will instantly create Postgres for you. So for those platforms, there will be no invite gate. I mean, that makes me go back to Heroku as well and how you can spin up different providers and all those different things and just how useful that was to, to spin that up. I also love that point on branching, especially like, when you see technology where there's like a step change in the speed of, of how something works, like getting a full copy of your database, just how that completely changes the use cases around it, right? Like when we went from deploying once a quarter to 
once a day or, or hour or minutely, uh, you know, it just changes all sorts of things that you almost can't even predict and, and need to think about reworking a lot of different things. Absolutely. We also think of that if the moment we have branching, that would allow people to also publish read-only versions of their database and potentially accessing them kind of like GitHub. You know, there are public repos in GitHub and you can have public Postgres databases and you can go and either query them read-only and you bring your own compute. So it doesn't cost anything anything to the person who published the database. It costs something for the person who is querying the database which is how it should be. And then it allows you to push a button and fork that. So now you can publish a WordPress database. You can publish, or you, you can create a, a bunch of templates that are only visible to your organization. And they become kind of starting points for people to build apps or starting points to run tests and CIs. So I think lots of things can be done. Very Lots of very cool things can be done with that separation of storage and compute. Yeah, awesome. I love it. So going into that, I want to go deeper on the on the technical stuff because I'm, I'm sure you have a lot of great stuff here. I mean, first of all, you're a multiple time tech co-founder of like hard infrastructure stuff. I love this like pin tweet that you have on Twitter. So you're talking about the three step formula for infrastructure startup success. And the first one is, hey, find a 10x architectural advantage somewhere in cost and speed in a large category. So some sort of technological change that unlocks something that wasn't available before, and then just build a really good team to exploit it and, and really focus on the developer experience. So first of all, like for Neon, I think you mentioned it earlier, but what's the 10x architectural advantage that, that Neon has that you're exploiting here? Yeah, great question. The answer here is, and I'm going to go kind of step by step, right? The architectural advantage is separation of storage and compute and integration of storage with S3, right? S3 is like a big component. And if you read our blog posts, you will get more details about how this works exactly, exactly how we maintain low latency for the storage, but still offload cold data to S3. So that is our 10X advantage number one. 10X advantage number two is like what it allows us to do. And this is serverless. And we implement serverless today by orchestrating containers. So that, that would allows us to put Postgres in a container. We're actually exploring micro VMs lately. You know, Firecracker and Cloud Hypervisor are, are extraordinary technologies. They allow us to do live migrations. And well, Cloud Hypervisor, not Firecracker, but Firecracker, you can freeze the world and then move it somewhere else. And as you do it, you don't even, it's possible to not even break the TCP connection. So serverless and that, that serverless orchestration is, is the other part of the 10x architectural advantage because it makes things so much more efficient in terms of not over-provisioning things. So that's our 10x architectural advantage. That architectural advantage is multiplied by the fact that everything is open sourced. And open source is the contribution to trust, right? People build trust because the technology is open source. It's a contribution to potentially partner with uh, people who want to bring Neon somewhere else, not just the three major cloud clouds, which is our focus right now. And open source is also taking contributions from the rest of the world. And all three of them are starting to show signs of life. So in a way, open source is also architecture, like, believe it or not. That's the 10x architectural advantage. Within that branching is a byproduct of separating of storage and compute. We knew how important that scenario is. And since you're building your storage from scratch, you're building, you know, like the storage is all written at Neon and we didn't really take any external components to that. Then you can architect it the way 
that branches are very, very cheap for you because we use copy on write. Interesting. So is the storage component of Neon is, is separate than like the standard Postgres storage component? In a way. So if you look at Postgres storage engine, it has multiple layers as well. And at the very lowest layer, Postgres requests pages from disk. So you can like dive deep in the code and you will see that Postgres requests, you know, reads a page, 8 kilobyte page from a hard drive. And then there is a place where Postgres writes the transaction log record on disk at the time of transaction commit and F-syncs that data. So Postgres obviously is a system of record. You need to F-sync to know it's there. We intercept these two code paths. And instead of reading a page from local disk, Postgres makes an RPC call into our storage and requested that page over the network. If you think about that might be slower, think about the fact that oftentimes people attach network attached disks such as EBS volumes to run Postgres anyway. So that interaction is go is going over the network anyway. And the other one is writing a transaction log record on disk. Instead of writing it locally, we send it over the network into our service that's called SafeKeepers. That's really it. So that the API between Postgres and, and storage is not your file system API. It's basically a custom engineered API that fits very, very well to into Postgres internals. The rest of the machinery of the Postgres storage engine is the same. You know, heaps, B-trees, indexes, all of that stuff stays. You know, vacuum, which is like an unfortunate byproduct of, of Postgres design, is still there. But when Postgres writes something to disk, instead of disk, it goes into into the Neon storage. Gotcha. So just at that very boundary there. Okay, that's great. So you mentioned Ed, the 10x architectural difference being separation of compute and storage. And like, what's the technological trigger that that made this happen? Is it is it just the cloud and the elasticity of the cloud, or like, what's different? Is it something about chips or SSDs, or what, what's the big difference there that made this possible? I think there are a few things that made it possible. I think it's like network latencies and NVMEs. The network latencies they and, and network bandwidth, they keep, keep shrinking. And so now you don't really see that much of a difference between running Postgres locally versus, you know, having storage that, that, that runs over the network. The second thing is, well, I think the scenario has matured as well. So the scenario has matured and some of the like was shown by Snowflake. And the, the scenarios of Snowflake are different, right? That's their, their focused in analytics, but separation of storage and compute was a huge deal for, for Snowflake and it unlocked certain scenarios. In the meantime, you know, the software development practices evolved around CI, CD and Git. And now everybody needs preview environments. Everybody connects things like Vercel to their GitHub repos to pick things up and publish them on the web and create, you know, sandbox URLs that you can share around. So multiplayer, I guess I shouldn't call it multiplayer, I should call it like just team collaboration went leaps and bounds. And those dev platforms took, you know, full advantage of this and, and provided a ton of value for that. And so database kind of felt stuck, right? So there's a little bit of hardware and cloud enablers, but I think the biggest driver is what people actually want to do with it. So that allowed us to to build this the right way. I want to talk to you about just a few things you've been thinking about, and it's, it relates to like a thesis I've been having. I've, re I've read like the Amazon Aurora paper and the more recent Amazon DynamoDB paper. And like one thing you notice there with these like cloud-based managed services is 
sort of the number of internal services it takes to manage all those different things and how they work together. And I was wondering if they were starting to tilt the playing field away from open source and more towards proprietary stuff, just because you can have these operational teams that can handle that. But it's interesting because you are open source. You have a few different services, compute, storage. You mentioned Safekeeper or what the transaction log was. Like, is Kubernetes helping manage that as well? Or because now you can, it's easier to run multiple services rather than just being like, hey, I only want to spin up a, a Postgres binary and not run anything else. Whereas now with Kubernetes, it's easier to run these systems or like what's sort of enabling, enabling that? I think it's a lot easier to put these together these days. You touched on, the, on a couple of points. First of all is, do clouds a road open source? We actually had a very interesting dinner with Christian Kleinerman, who is the chief product officer of Snowflake. And his point of view, obviously from the Snowflake mountain is, well, hey, it doesn't matter as much open source or not because everything is cloud. And since everything is cloud, it's all about simplicity, ease of consumption, consumption-based model and, and value driven to the customer. And then on the other side of the spectrum, in the same category of data and analytics, there's Databricks that started with the open source project, which is Spark, and took full advantage of, of, of open source. So I think we'll see the world of both. I think every infrastructure project is going to be cloud, full stop. And within every infrastructure closed projects, there will be cloud that are fully proprietary, and there will be clouds that open source their implementations. Our mission is kind of is to build a fabric that runs the internet, and we want that fabric to be open source. I think it creates a more durable technology over time, and it, it, it creates opportunities to be absolutely pervasive. And I think if you have, want to see an example of it, that's Postgres, right? They, they, that technology became absolutely pervasive. I don't believe into proprietary on-prem software. That's, I think, that category by itself, I think, is going away. I believe in cloud services and kind of my dream is that open source run the internet. So that's kind of one of the reasons for us to choose that open source route. Yeah. I love that dream and just like never bet against open source. I also just think it's cool sort of the vision you're saying of having these read only branches of your data, maybe stored on Neon's technology, but then you can imagine fly hosting like compute of Neon that, that connects to those things and you can have different yeah. services sort of. Glue the the shared Slack channel with fly. So we're absolutely talking to Kurt about this. So in terms of branching, you mentioned copy on write and, and that how that enables it. What is copy on write? So copy on write is when you request a particular page in the Neon storage, you refer to that page. Let's just simplify it a little bit by page ID and log sequence number and, and branch ID. And when you create a branch, all you do is create a new branch ID and when you request a page in the new branch with a new branch ID, but it keeps the same LSN, it points to the same page. So creating of a branch is a meta size of metadata operation. You know, I created a new branch ID and then it forks it, right? And if you start writing in the new branch, it will start creating new pages that are not visible to the, to the parent branch. But as long as you're querying old pages, which the majority, at least at the moment of the creation of the branch, the majority of the page, pages will be old you will be requesting the same page. So you're not really doubling your storage when you're creating your branch. That's what copy and write is. When you start modifying that page, then we'll create an additional page and the new branch will have that page and the old branch will have the old page. But as long as you're not modifying anything, they will be pointing to the same branch. So it's copy and write is a kind of general purpose. It's a concept. 
and our particular implementation does copy and write specifically at the page level. What I knew about copy, like the most popular open source to copy and write technology is probably ZFS. And what's interesting, there's a, a relatively big company built around ZFS and database workloads. And that company is uh, Delphix. So it's a company that packages ZFS and creates developer experience around those copies. And they use it to run all sorts of databases on it and, and improves dev test staging environments in the old world, in the old on-prem world. I don't I actually don't know, but you know, the, the last time I checked, they were mostly proprietary technology that, that runs in the data center. So I know their customers, I know their founders. I think it's a very cool idea, but it's due to the, the, the nature of their distribution, it's only accessible to a relatively small number of people in large enterprises that run, you know, fleets of databases on-prem. We're here saying, hey, this is a great idea, but we want to give it to everyone. And we want to give it to everyone for like trivial consumption in the cloud. I want to talk a little bit about performance and like a few questions around like performance. How well, like how well are you trying to, how do you compare yourself to bog standard Postgres? Should it be pretty equivalent there? And especially as you move into things like offloading to S3 or, you know, sort of more dynamic compute, how does that affect things? Yeah, this is a great question. Performance starts with goals, right? At single store, to, to contrast this with Ian, our goals, is, goals were to be the fastest analytical solution on the planet. You know, the people who like absolutely love single store really loves its performance. They're like, well, this is the best thing, the fastest thing since sliced bread. We sunk an enormous amount of engineering into this and, and that what created this passion following. At Neon, our performance bar is Aurora. So we want to be just as good or better than Aurora and we'll do what kind of what modern hardware allows us to do. And we certainly don't want to be worse than Aurora. And all our internal tests are comparing Neon with Aurora, especially with Aurora serverless. I think we may be pleasantly surprised. We are learning that Aurora is good, but not great. And that keeps us optimistic that we can be for certain scenarios and databases are such a vast surface area that you can't just say you're faster. You can be faster for this scenario and that scenario will be relatively narrow. We'll see certain scenarios where we're already faster than Aurora. For certain scenarios, we're slower than Aurora. And we're digging in. The way to, to work with performance is, well, understand all the variables that go into, into this. Be confident about your architecture. If, if you find issues, you obviously change it. And then spend a lot of iterations of you know, producing flame graphs and figuring out where the bottlenecks are. So I don't have a better solution here, but back to the goals is our goal is to be on par or faster than AWS Aurora. Going back to your tweet earlier about, you know, finding an advantage, your second step was, hey, build a frequently good engineering team for that. What were you looking for in the Neon team? How hard was it to find these people? I'm, I'm sure you've been in the database world for a while, but like, what did that sort of look like in building out this initial team? Yeah, when you think about this, you kind of want to start with the founding team. The founding team, in my opinion, should have all the ingredients that given enough time without any additional help, being able to build the full product or at least build the, the, the full product in its first iteration. And I'm not talking about the MVP. I'm talking about, you know, the product that can actually generate revenue. So there's going to, should be enough DNA in the founding team to be able for you to get there. This actually allows you, weirdly enough, allows you to hire better. 
Right, because like-minded people want to join join the crusade. And we're blessed with the fact that the two are the co-founders, Heiki and, and Stas, who are both Postgres hackers, possess all the required DNA to, to deliver on the vision. Well, the team is now is pushing 40, 40 people, and the majority of those uh, of those folks are, are engineers. Here are the few things that, that helped us hire this team relatively quickly, and I'm very proud about the capabilities of that team. Some of them are more controversial than others, so we'll talk about that. The first one, it's open source, right? It, you know, believe it or not, it's easier to hire for the open source project than for the non-open source project. And then your work is out there for everyone on display, for everybody to see. So if you go and look at the Neon repo, very easy to see who's the most productive. By the way, that's Heiki. And then it's easy to see, you know, everyone's contribution. There are some really, you know, complex pieces of code that, that more like art and then you can, you can see, and people are really proud of their work that they put into open source projects. And they know that others will be looking. The second thing that helped us is Rust. So we chose early on that our storage will be built in Rust. My friend and the first engineer at MemSQL, Alex Skidanov, who later built a company, a crypto company called Neo Protocol, told me once that, you know, there will be a day that somebody is going to start a database project and they will decide to build it in Rust and they will move multiple times faster than an alternative project in, written in C++ and, you know, single stars written in C++. And then, so I spent some time understanding why that is and wrote a small amount of code in Rust just like, just to see what it feels like. And it became clear that this is the future. And also it's going to be easier to attract the next generation systems developer if your core project is written in Rust. That paid off. That paid off. One of the most productive folks on the team is a, is a former member of Rust Analyzer. And, you know, it's just an example of just the choice of what you write your, your project in also contributes to your ability to hire. The second is super controversial. The third one is super controversial. And then people just argue ad nauseum about this. And that is, are you remote first or are you in the office in real life? And yesterday when we were going around the table and there were some really cool companies, you know, when the dinner with Christian Feinerman of, of Snowflake and really cool, cool companies around the table debated, you know, are we, you know, this is so cool when everybody is in one place and it's, uh, you know, if you, if you're not, you lose on serendipitous and inter interactions. And then when you remote, you have easier access to talent. So we chose to be remote. We started during the pandemic. Our payroll started March 1st, 21. And we found it's, it's easier to find just the right person if you're fishing in the global pond. But we're losing out on those serendipitous interactions. So that's the third piece. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. It's, it's a little bit of both. I was going to ask when, when y'all started working on, on Neon. So March of, of 21. So about a year and a half and you're already, I mean, you, it was a year and a quarter into public beta is all it took. Correct. Yeah. And, and March 1st, we only had a, you know, we had myself, Heiki and Stas and, and a slide deck. Wow. That's amazing. That's pretty quick. Two last questions I want to get for you. Number one. So you were, you know, a founder of an infrastructure startup before single store, you know, lots of great success there. I know some friends that, that really love it. What did you learn from that experience that you're, that you're bringing over to Neon? I think the thing that I learned, those are bets, right? So. Single store is clearly a success. Most likely the company will go public. And that's really amazing. It's like how often this happens. The, but there were things that were hard and 
single store has a ton of technology. So meaning if you say, oh, I'm going to build a database. On top of it, you say, I'm going to build all parts of that database. I'm going to build storage and compute and a cloud service and various on-prem installs. That is just a lot of technology within the database, storage, compute, query optimization, query execution. Then you say, I'm going to cover transactional and analytical workloads. So it's just a vast system that people, when they look at it, they don't believe that that this can work, but it does. In Ethnium, we're incredibly narrow. So we're saying we're only cloud, you know, bits are open source, but we are offering consumption only in the cloud. If you want to, you know, roll the bits yourself, you're on your own. It's only serverless. It's only Postgres. We're starting with only AWS. We're going to run other clouds. And what I see that allows you to do is it allows you to focus, right? And we're also not rebuilding compute. That's Postgres. We're only building storage. So it's actually a lot less technology that we're building here at Neon that allows us to make that technology really deep. And it also allows us to create lots and lots of friends. So now every analytical system is our friend right? Because we are not encroaching on their territory. Every company that is building for the Postgres ecosystem, and we didn't fork Postgres, it's just Postgres, is our friend. Every distribution platform that needs a database is our friend. Every organization that just runs Postgres already is, a, is our potential customer. So that's one thing that, it, that I learned from the single store experience. And that's what we do differently. The thing that we're going to do the same is the quality of the engineering team and the engineering bar. I think, you know, Single store ended up being a global company. There are at least seven offices, I think, around the world now. So we're going to do the same for, but from day zero. But in terms of like the quality of the systems engineer on the team is just as good or higher. That would be another lesson learned. Cool. Just to wrap it up, let's talk about the future. What are you excited about? What are you seeing either in terms of, you know, what's happening with Neon, what's happening with just databases, what's happening with applications? Like, what are you excited about and what are you seeing? Great question. I think the problem of Purely running your app on a cloud database is for the most part sold, right? And you can get that solution on the cloud providers. You can get that solution on Heroku's and the like, DigitalOcean, Ivan, you know, lots and lots of places. I think the problem of, of helping developers build an app on a database is far from sold. So databases give you very, very little support for the modern developer workflow. And the architecture kind of prevents them from, from doing that, right? which I think is the, the biggest opportunity for Neon. Where the world is heading is increasingly greater amount of automation. So once the systems part and the key workflow parts like branchings are out of the way and all the integrations with, with the modern dev platforms are built, we're going to keep investing in ways of helping developers build their apps. Some of the things we're exploring, and I can't obviously commit to, to any of that because it's in a lab. It may or may not happen and may or may not be the right approach. And sometimes I say something and the, the team freaks out. But the stuff that, that we are looking at is with the advances of AI, it seems silly that we as developers still need to choose indexes for our databases. It feels like this should be automated. The enabling technology at Neon is one click creating a test playground. So we can create a test play- playground and auto create indexes. And then we know your workload as well. So we can, we can prove to you that, that your workload, the performance improves and you don't break anything. Does it have to be AI? Maybe it doesn't have to be. They're like research starting from like early 2000s 
that can do that with like just in, imperatively or you know like irregular algorithms or we can do it with ai i don't know what the right solution is but i do know that it's kind of silly to push that complexity on users speaking of ai though think about a workflow of a modern developer usually this person is an expert in whatever language this person uses you know should it be javascript or go or java or whatever it doesn't matter what it is but that is the primary programming language for this person and typically with the interaction with the database that language is like sql is not is not the the number one language for that person and so that's where like copilot or replit ghostwriter could provide additional value to go and help you write that sql and you know neon can be a part of that or copilot can start generating sql or an interaction between the two the other thing is and those demos like keep blowing my mind you can generate code or you can translate from one code to another and open ai famously showed how to translate from javascript to python and when i look at it i don't understand why i wouldn't be able be able to translate from javascript to sql and make it a part of of a workflow of course you need to know what the schema is but that's where neon comes in providing that information to to ai once you are a lot more fluid translating code or or generating code for your program you're not interrupting developer flow and that's a big deal and then from there you know there's all sorts of databases that are out there there's like there are companies that use sybase and they have like you know sybase is it's not long gone it's still there but like nobody wakes up and start and starts new projects on sybase but they have this like large footprints and then those have stored procedures and what not so it would be great if we could just migrate those stored procedures using ai using like co-translation technologies into postgres and provide some sort of interactive way for developers to do that these observations is like you know people do know sql but like a small subset of those people know you know postgres stored procedure language and so that's where like generative technologies that's where autocomplete that's where copilot can make a big difference in just how fast you progress Yeah, awesome. And especially like I know in the JavaScript TypeScript ecosystem you're seeing things like Prisma, so you get more typing around your database and and that taking off and that interacting with Copilot and being able to like you're saying go from JavaScript what you want in JavaScript and getting it, it directly in SQL in a nice clean way that that's pretty awesome. I assume that your team is doing something at the storage level, level a little more involved than just copiloting from from C to Rust for the Postgres storage. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> we don't we don't we don't do any of that. Yeah. yeah. The storage <laughs> The storage system is built from first principles and from scratch. You can trace it and it's all public, right? It's all on GitHub. I'm sure that's some cool stuff and and I'm excited to see the progress here. I you know, again, I started with Postgres, that was my first database love and and really been looking for something that fits well in the serverless world. So, Nikita, thank you for coming on today. I'll be, you know, I'll be watching Neon going forward. For people that want to go check out more about Neon, where can they find Neon? Where can they find you? Well, there's neon.tech My email is nikita at neon.tech. My Twitter handle is nikitabase. I keep working on database technologies and so I think it kind of fits. <laughs> yeah, those are the two DMs that are open. Awesome. Sounds great. Nikita Shamganov, thank you for joining us on Software Engineering Daily.